moments in prayer. I just want to share some words and some thoughts in light of what we have been going through as a people, as a church. The past several years now, we have been confronted as a nation and as a church with issues related to race in ways that we probably, you know, we're okay to turn a blind eye to, at least in our conscience. But a few years ago, outside of or inside of Charlottesville city limits, a white nationalist rally that was not denounced at the highest levels of government brought issues of, of race and the original sin of racism of our nation to the forefront of our collective thoughts and minds. It was then the killings of many African Americans, people like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, that continued to push this closer in our view, our line of sight, brought it closer to home. And then I think it was probably when George Floyd was killed that we as Asian Americans felt the need that we could not stand idle and sit on the sidelines like the police in whom we saw, many of us saw ourselves in the arena of race relations here in our nation and began just moving our thoughts and moving our hearts and moving our conscience. And as COVID-19 began to take root, we've lost so much as a result of this pandemic. But one of the things that it's uncovered was also a sense of racism against Asian Americans. The majority of us here are Asian Americans and the close to 4,000 acts of violence, in addition to the microaggressions that have already been latent and there that we've experienced as we live in this wonderful nation. And then this week in Atlanta, we heard the news that eight people's lives, eight people loved by God, eight people made in the image of God were murdered and killed by a lone gunman who was on his way to our state when he was apprehended. I know it produces a whole lot of emotions within us. There's a deep intersectionality, and you've heard that word a lot, and this one is conflicting for many of us. But I want to begin by reading the names of those who were killed in Atlanta this past week. Not that you haven't seen them, not that you haven't seen their names, at least in English. But for me, something moved within my heart when I saw them written in our own heritage, especially, well, at least those who are Korean. So I want to read the names of those who were killed because for those of us who come from Korean-American background, as our church is an English congregation within a Korean church, these names sound very much like our mothers, like our sisters, like our daughters. Eight people whose lives were taken this week. Park Sun Jamo. Kim Hyunjung. Kim Sunja. Yu Younghe. Delena Ashley Young. Paul Andre Michels. Tan Xiao Chia. Fung Daoya. As I uh, was trying to process through, there was a, a lot of emotions in me. There was a lot of confusion in me. Again, the intersections of, of race, of gender, and of, in this one of religion. Disciple of Jesus Christ, Southern Baptist Church taught the same teachings that we're taught within our church. It was a lot to process. And as a people of God, as a people of race, we need to process. We need to grieve. We need to lament. We need spaces in which to do this. This Wednesday at our prayer meeting, uh, we had some time to reflect on the events of this past week and time to pray. And this week at our prayer meeting, we'll have deeper spaces and more designated and deliberate spaces for us to do that. We'll encourage you to come out and to share your thoughts because your thoughts and your voice and your feelings and your personhood matter. They're important and you need to know that. 
despite what the mainstream media tells us, despite what we all know and feel, whatever the shooter's expressed intent was, the impact of his actions are clear that there were deep and racist implications that affect the majority of us in here. And you and I need to know that what we feel matters. When the powers that be stand up and say there was no racial motivation in this, the tendency is for us to feel like a lot of us have felt for the majority of our lives. That what I think doesn't matter, that what I feel doesn't matter. I can be pushed to the margins again. I can be marginalized. What I think and feel are secondary to what other people tell me. And that is antithetical to the gospel and to the scriptures that we preach, that we read, and that we believe. You matter to God. We are made, every single human being, in the image of God, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. You have never looked into the eyes of another human being or read about them or heard about them. No matter how damaged, how broken their lives are, no matter the choices that they've made, you've never locked eyes with another human being who is not made in the image of Almighty God. And you and I need to know that when you feel so alone, that you're not, that you matter and that we're in this together and that there are countless voices that are rising up because change is possible and change is happening. I want to read to you um, an excerpt from a statement that was written by some of my friends and colleagues on a movement called SOLA, upon whose counsel I sit. And this was a response to what happened this week. And I want to read these words and then spend a few moments in prayer. It says, We grieve and mourn over the loss of life that human life as God's crown jewel of creation could be taken away so brutally and recklessly. We grieve over the growing anti-Asian sentiment in our country. We grieve over how media coverage and official reports minimized and marginalized the concerns and voices of the Asian American community during the investigation. We grieve over the fears, frustrations, and perpetual foreigner struggles that Asian Americans wrestle through that prevent us from flourishing. We grieve for the multiple threads of sin that have been exposed this week, including racism and misogyny. Their entanglement has shown how deep and intertwined the roots of sin are in our society. We grieve over the fact that someone was raised and discipled in churches only to come to the wrong conclusion that these women were at fault for his personal temptations. We grieve over the fact that Christianity, the Bible's teachings, and pursuit of holiness were grossly misappropriated to justify and explain this crime, especially in front of a watching world of unbelievers. We grieve that this man's wrestling with sexual sin did not result in genuine repentance and fighting until the point of bloodshed internally, but rather choosing to see women as objects of blame and shedding their blood. We hope that churches this Sunday and beyond would be spaces where Asian American Christians can express lament, rage, and grief. We hope all Christians would support anti-hate campaigns, provide financial support to those in need, and raise gospel awareness to fight misogyny, racism, addiction, and other societal sins. We hope all people who are hurting would seek counseling with churches, standing with them for support. Finally, we call upon Christians and churches to pray. Pray that churches would tirelessly work for the gospel, knowing that only the gospel can ultimately heal, forgive, and redeem. Pray for those who weep and mourn. Pray for justice to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that Christians would speak up for the marginalized. Pray that churches would be prophetic voices calling for change, justice, reconciliation, and peace. O Lord God, of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Psalm 88, 1 and 2. I want to encourage us to spend a moment to pray 
to the God who knows what it was like to be marginalized, who knows what it was like to be oppressed, to be persecuted, and to be treated as someone other, ultimately bearing on his body the marks of the hate against him, which was leveled at the cross. To lament is to cry out for what is wrong, to call out to God for change, and to trust that he is able and that he hears us. And so to the church, to the people of God, to those who are not yet followers of Jesus, to believers in his, to Asian Americans, especially to Asian American women, you are valuable and you are special and you are loved and you are cherished so much more than sometimes we could ever express. Would you join me in a couple moments of prayer? Can you pray? Prayers of lament. Lament is what we do when we don't know what to do. It's to call out to God to do what we cannot. Let's pray to God. For men of the church, if we have been propagating a misogynistic message that has oppressed women, that has seen them as someone other than beloved of God made in the image of our creator. Let's collectively repent for that. Let's pray for the families of those who were murdered. Let's pray for change. Let's pray for hope. Let's pray for help. Let's pray together for a minute or two minutes. Not enough time, obviously, but perhaps a starting point for us to continue in our prayers collectively as well as individually. Let's pray together. You can pray out loud or you can pray quietly, but let's pray honestly for a couple moments. And after we do for a minute or so, I'll pray on our behalf and then we'll look into the word together. Let's pray as a church. in heaven as we gather this Sunday morning with churches across the nation. Lord, we pray that calls to pray and calls to lament and calls for change would ring out across the land, especially from the hearts of believers. The gospel, the hope of the world, the gospel which bridged Jew and Gentile in a way that no one thought was humanly possible is the hope of Christ for our world and for generations to come. Lord, many fear for their mothers, for their sisters, for their daughters, for their children, for their family members, for their elderly, aging friends and family this morning. We pray that you would have mercy and that you would heal. Pray that your healing would come to those who grieve, those who mourn, whether connected to the victims or not. Father, we pray your grace would abound in a special way to them, but we pray for those around the globe who suffer and fear. Pray that you would give comfort that you would allow there to be expressions in healthy ways of what's going on inside. Teach us to lament, teach us to pray, teach us to hope and to trust in the work in order that our future would be better than our present and that our present would be better than our past. We can do better, but we can do better because of Christ. Pray that you would help us. 
Father, forgive us as a church harvest and as a church at large for ways in which we have knowingly or unknowingly propagated a misogynistic mentality and message that has oppressed and been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Pray that you would have mercy and that you would cleanse and forgive. Help us to be lovers of people, to see them the way that you do. Now, as we turn our attention to the word of God, as a youth pastor brings the word of God, may your anointing be over your servant as he preaches, and may you give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church for this moment in time. Thank you so much. We need you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us online. Um, it's great to worship with you, um, to be with you all. My name is Josiah, and I'm the youth pastor for our youth ministry. And it's uh, a very special, special place in my heart um, to be able to share God's love with and to shepherd um, some very dear students. Before we begin, I want to invite you to join me in prayer for one of our students who is very precious to me, um, very dear to my hearts, and very dear to all of our hearts. Um, last night, uh, one of our high schoolers, Livga, was involved in a very serious car accident. Uh, she is thankfully alive, but not without serious injury. And so if you could join us just lifting her up um, in prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, we, we pray for, for Livka. Um, we know that you are a God who heals broken nations. You bind up broken hearts. And we pray that for Livka that you would um, bind up her broken body. And we thank you that she is alive, um, but we pray for a speedy recovery for her health. Um, God, as we look into Jonah 3 today, would you illuminate this word to our hearts, um, help us to see your compassion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, on the topic of, of paintings, and, and kind of con in continuation of last week, my favorite painting is Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. Uh, if you're not familiar with this story, this is a story that comes 800 years after the book of, the book of Jonah. Uh, it's taught by Jesus, it's, it's a lesson for us to understand and see ourselves. Uh, the book, this, the prodigal son story centers around a father who has two sons. The younger son demands his inheritance from his father, thereby wishing that his father dies. He takes his wealth that his father gives him, and he goes off into a distant country where he squanders his wealth on sex and booze and everything that you can imagine that brings pleasure. And then he comes to rock bottom. And at rock bottom, he finds himself feeding pigs in a way to survive. And it's in that moment that he realizes that life is better if he was even just a servant in his father's home. And so he makes a long way back home. And this painting is a picture that encapsulates how the, the son comes in his rags. He's lying, at the knees in his, he's lying on his knees in the bosom of his father. And so we see different, three different emotions here. We see the contrition and the remorse and the sorrow the desperation of the young son who's lying in the arms of his father. And then we see the father with his tender hands of compassion welcoming home the prodigal son. And to the right, we see the elder son who is dressed the same way as the father but has a very different response. He looks with condescension and almost a scowl that his brother is back and he's being welcomed in this way. Why bring up this painting? Well, it shows a parallel between this and the three characters that we're going to see in Jonah 3. And so my hope is that this can illuminate us, the, the truths that we see from three truths in this chapter. Uh, the title of this message is about God's mission. It's about our commission. It's about their contrition and his compassion. And so through three different characters or parties, we see three different truths that God is trying to teach us about his mission. We saw in the first week of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 1, that any time we run from God, it's a downward spiral from life into death. When Jonah, who's called to the most evil country, the most horrible and brutal people, 
that this land has faced. He runs the opposite direction for good reason. But God, in pursuit of Jonah and in pursuit of Nineveh, sends and hurls a storm and sends a fish to bring Jonah back to the mission. And last week, we saw in Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale, where he offers an incomplete, a lacking, insufficient prayer, where there isn't the right, proper repentance that he has before God. If chapters one, chapter one's theme is about running from God as a downward spiral, and chapter two's theme is that not everything is as it appears, especially with Jonah's prayer, chapter three's theme is that everything is turned upside down. And we'll see that here. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. and read from verse 1 through 10 um, for God's word this morning. So Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This should be familiar to us. This is Jonah chapter 1. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You and I hopefully have by now identified very well with Jonah. In this passage, we're actually going to identify with all three characters. Jonah is sent on a mission. We are sent on a mission. The Ninevites and the king of Nineveh, they repent. And similarly, you and I, we struggle with repentance. We're so screwed up that we can't even repent properly. And then we see the God's compassion, the Father's compassion for a people who do not deserve his love. And in the same way, we are called to do the same. So three thoughts we see from three characters that captures God's mission for wayward people. First, God commissions all of us to join his rescue. God commissions all of us to join his rescue. And there are three things we're going to see from this. We're going to see that Jonah has a second chance. Jonah has a big mess, and also Jonah is compliant. So Jonah acts like the elder son from this painting. His smug, self-righteousness condescends the prodigal son. And we see the three observations. First, Jonah has a second chance. In Jonah 3.1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The assignment for Jonah has not changed Why a second time? Because we serve a God of magnificent love. If God can work with a silly, wayward prophet like Jonah, then what's to stop him from using you? Wherever you are, if you have been running from God as Jonah has, you can still turn to him. You cannot travel any distance so far that you're outside the bounds of God's love and his mercy. And I don't know what bad choices you've made this week or how you've run from God. But I do know that we serve a God of amazing grace and great patience. We've done things that we're not proud of. But God delights to use messed up people to pursue messed up people. And that's the mission of God. He delights in commissioning inadequate people like you and me and Jonah. When Jonah ran, God put on his running shoes and he goes after Jonah. The second thing we see in this in Jonah's commission, is Jonah's mess. God commissions and sends Jonah to go after other spiritual runaways. God used a runaway to go after other runaways. His mess became his ministry. In the same way, your mess will become your ministry. You might have heard of um, Frank Abnagel Jr. Uh, If you watch the movie Catch Me If You Can, this is a real-life person. And this guy 
uh, at the age of 15, he started conning banks. And I'm so thankful that none of our sophomores are doing that yet. Uh, but from the ages of 15 to 21, he fleeced so many banks by giving fr- um, fraud, fraudulent checks. And he assumed eight different identities to get about this way. Well, he was eventually caught, as everyone gets caught. And what is he doing now? He's not sitting in prison. He's working with the federal government and the FBI to help catch other con artists. His mess has become, in a way, his redemptive work. And in the same way, for Jonah, we see that before God wants to do anything through Jonah, God has to do something to Jonah. Like God has the power to do whatever he wants to do through whomever he wants to do in the way that he calls. So we see Jonah's colossal failures. Like Jonah has run from God. He's been disobedient. But his great failure makes him a greater servant for a great king. And we cannot walk into our callings unless we have been like Jonah through the belly of the fish. It's like baking. I don't know baking much. But I do know that you don't eat raw sugar by itself. But I kind of do. You don't also eat butter or flour by itself. You have to stir it up. You have to heat it up. You have to beat it. And in this way, it produces a product that's, a f- that's refined. In the same way, you and I are put through the ringer when we go through the belly of the fish. And that's what Jonah does here. We, we learn as we suffer what we go through that that helps us to see the need of this world. The social workers we see that help our foster care system, a lot of times they've been through that foster care system themselves. Counselors and therapists who help us through our mental illnesses and our personality disorders, they have experienced that firsthand either through their own personal ways or in their family and their dysfunctions. God doesn't waste our pain. He didn't waste Jonah's. There's not a waste experience. Nineveh is actually, they worshipped a fish god. They worshipped this big fish. Nineveh meant the city of fish. And so when the prophet Jonah got vomited on the shores and comes out of this fish, you can imagine what they're thinking. Like, oh my gosh. One, that's embarrassing. But two, like, maybe we should listen to this dude. And so God makes Jonah's biggest embarrassment, being vomited out of a fish, his biggest source of credibility to this people group. And that's what God's saying is your pain can be your platform for ministry. God loves to use messed up people to reach messed up people. So God calls us to go. He calls us to join in his rescue work. All of us, as we are believers, we are called to go. God is by nature a sending God. He loves to commission. He never calls us in to bless us without having us go out to be a blessing to other people. When God calls a specific person to a specific mission, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. But the place of greatest sacrifice becomes the greatest place of satisfaction. That's God's intention with commissions. And the third thing we see with Jonah is his compliance. So notice this is compliance. I could have used a different word like obedience, but Jonah was not obedient. Obedience infers, and what it means is that we are doing God's work and God's will with the right posture of heart, that we are doing this for God. Compliance, on the other hand, you might do the work, but your heart's not in it. And if you're a parent, I'm sure you know all about that, right? So for example, um, we see Pastor Deal's son, Elijah, uh, who is blessed with a beautiful commissioning to by our, a beautiful couple of our church, Duty and Sarkin, at their wedding to be, an, uh, to be a ring bearer down the aisle. But before that happened, Manny was a flower girl, and instead of Elijah was a dog, a ring dog, which I've never heard before. But because of inclement weather, the wedding was moved from outside to inside, and the dog was moved from inside to outside, and Elijah was a replacement. But he was not very enthusiastic. Manny, on the other hand, loved it, right? So if, you, if you're at the wedding, you would see Manny Elijah walking down inside. Manny is beaming, like she's glowing. This is her moment. She lived all her life for this. Elijah is dragging his feet. I mean, he's going down the aisle, right? But he's dragging his feet. In the same way, that's the picture of the dichotomy of compliance and obedience, right? They're both doing the same thing. But Jonah, like Elijah, is, does not have his heart in it. And you see it because Jonah preaches a message that's only five words long in the Hebrew language and eight words long in the English language. And a lot of SNF students are like, oh my gosh, dude, Josiah, if, if, if Jonah could turn a whole city overturned in with revival in, in eight words, maybe you could do two instead of 4,000. Um, but 
what we see is that Jonah's successful preaching of revival comes not because of his oratory skills. It's not his preaching. It's not also contingent upon the Assyrian worthiness of receiving this message. It's entirely based on God's compassion. That God used a very poor sermon that was very, very short, one that preached only wrath, to bring about the mercy and the change and transformation of a people. Our calling, your calling, our commissioning as believers is not to accomplish the task or the mission. Our commissioning and what we're required to do is simply to go. God will accomplish the task. You can't make an immoral person moral. You can't make a stubborn husband or a stubborn wife more tender and compassionate. You can't make a disobedient child obedient. Only God can do this. And in this way, it's freeing because the burden falls off of our shoulders and the responsibility too. Our job is not to turn our neighbor or the stubborn family member who doesn't want to come to church. Our job is not to turn Orlando. God uses us to do that, but the fault doesn't fall upon us fully. God sends us. He is the one who commissions us. And that is enough for us to see that with impossible tasks that are on our horizon, with impossible people to reach out to, that God is with us, and that's all that we need. When God calls us to something, it's always something that we do not have the capacity to fulfill on our own. If we can do it, we don't need God. And in that way, it's not an assignment from God. So the question is, for all of us here, is will you go? Nineveh is not far away. It's right here. It's with your neighbor. It's in Orlando. But at the same time, Nineveh is also very far away. There are millions of people across the world who have never heard of the gospel. You've heard this, you might have heard of this term, unreached people groups. These are, as defined as the Joshua Project, specific groups of people with a very certain and unique identity and culture and tongue who have never heard and have no current witness of the gospel by a church or a missionary. Of the 17,500 people groups in the world, 7,500 people groups are unreached. That's 3.3 billion people. 3.3 billion people who have never heard that Jesus loves them and desires to save them. Um, when I was in uh, North Korea, uh, back in, in college in 2014, um, I went to Pyongyang, the capital city, for two weeks for our medical missions trip. And there we were able to help North Koreans um, in, with medicine, um, paired with the gospel. And as I was there, I, I learned to study the rich and robust history of North Korea and how we used to have a thriving church that was eventually squelched out by persecution. But prior to the turn of the 20th century, there were missionaries coming from our denomination, coming from the United States, to come to our lands in Korea. And a lot of us here identify as Korean-American. And if you see their stories, many of them were beheaded before they even got off the boat. And the missionaries that first came in waves and waves, you can go to a cemetery in South Korea called Yangwonjin, and you'll see there the missionaries, there's a plot of land that's dedicated to missionaries who have given their lives for our country for the sake of the gospel. People like Ruby Kendrick, who at 25 left Plano, Texas to bring the gospel to people in North Korea who died of appendicitis when she couldn't receive medical treatment. And other missionaries who buried their children in North Korea so that the gospel could be spread. And what this shows is that they obeyed the commission to go. And you and I would not be here if you identify as Korean American without their sacrifice. As we were traveling in North Korea, we went from Pyongyang to the eastern shore in Wonsan, uh, which is a four-hour bus ride. It was the first time our team was able to go outside the city limits of Pyongyang to see what conditions were really like in North Korea. And the sights we saw remain instilled in my mind and ingrained in my mind forever. I remember seeing the country. And our guide told us, look at the land. It's beautiful and it's so lush. There's so much life. In reality, you see a people that's walking around without vehicles, malnourished, skinny, 
barely surviving. And not only are they wasting away on the exterior, but the whole land is dead spiritually. And I don't know if you've ever been to a country or to a place where you see every person that you see on the streets has never heard the gospel. That's a place that is radically different from here. And so as I was in the bus, I would see images like these where you would see old women who are bent over at 90 degrees carrying back crops from the field. And as I was praying that for a bus ride, I wept the entire way. And I had to ask the God whom I worshipped, how can you, a gracious and merciful God, abandon an entire nation for 70 years? Do you not care about these people? And as I cried, I heard from the Lord, and he said, Josiah, if, if you could feel the full heart of how much my heart breaks for this country, your heart would not bear. What you're feeling now and the way that you grieve is but a fraction of how much my heart breaks for this country. There is half of the world's population out there who have never heard the gospel, born, lived, and die without ever hearing how much God loves them and desires to save them. And what's it going to take for the church to see this as intolerable? We are busy fighting a war here on our lands about race. And yet, we dismiss and we forget that there are races out there who have never heard Jesus Christ and how much he loves them. That's a war that we have forgotten. That's a war that God calls us to, to make disciples of all nations. So what does this mean for you and I? How do you respond when God gives you a second chance like he gave one to Jonah? You might respond by focusing on the fact that you don't deserve this grace and because of that you shouldn't join in the mission. Or you might respond in a way where you see and recognize you don't, you don't deserve a second chance, but you embrace it because of God's grace. And what this shows is that God is not surprised by your sin. In the ways that you have failed him, he knew that even before he saved you. Your porn addiction, your sex outside and before marriage, the ways your gossiping tongue has no fetter, the times you smoked too much, drank too much, the ways you took too much of that thing, the ways you abused or were abused. God's not surprised. He's seen it. And still, he invites you, as messed up as you are, to join in his rescue mission, to rescue other messed up people. That's a God that's worth following. But how do you also respond to other people who deserve maybe a second chance? Do you, or do you tend to give people a second chance when compassion should be extended to them? Or do you focus on the fact that they didn't deserve it and you move on? And how does the story of Jonah embolden your desire and your zeal for missions and evangelism? Jonah was a very small-town preacher. He was Jewish. How could this most powerful nation listen to a person like him? And I know and I understand that we all have fears and qualms about sharing the gospel, about evangelism, about missions. And that's okay, and it's natural. Like, God knows this. He's not like he's, like, dumb, but he sees us. He sees how we struggle, and yet he is still patient to use us. But he calls us to go. And just like he commissioned Moses, he says, go, I will give you the words to speak. And when Moses protests, God says, but I will be with you, and that's enough. So God commissions us to be on his mission. The second thing we see, the second thought, is that contrition should always lead to transformation. Contrition should always lead to transformation. We see this in the prodigal son in the great city of Nineveh when the king and the city, they act in this picture as a prodigal son. The most vile force in all of the world is brought to their knees. The prophet Nahum calls Nineveh the city of blood. And it's not for without reason. Nineveh was 500 miles away from Jerusalem it was distant and wicked, and yet God still cared because the Creator was seeking to reconcile all of creation. 
Three times in this book, the city is called great. And by great, we mean many things. It says in Jonah uh, 3.6 that it took three days to navigate the city. Going through every neighborhood, that's how big it was. Not only big in geography, but big in population. There's 120,000 people, which for us is not big, but for that time, that's huge. But also it's great because of their military might. As I said in the first message, that Nineveh was in Assyria, were known for their most vile and heinous tactics. When they would conquer a city, they would kill all the men, but first they would do it with their pleasure of torture. They would dismember each person, each soldier, until there was an arm left, and then shake their hand as they died. They would flay and skin the leaders alive, decapitate their heads, give it to the children of those soldiers, make them parade through the streets, and then burn the children alive. This was a people of great proportion that definitely did not deserve any of God's calling. We can see why Jonah ran. But what's interesting and what's amazing is that before Jonah was even born, God was preparing Nineveh for Jonah's message. You see, in the century leading up to Jonah's message, there were two epidemics, there were revolts, there were famines, and there was an eclipse from the sun. All of that were omens at the time pointing to judgment that would come. And so by the time Jonah comes out of this fish, they're like, we got to listen to this message because judgment is going to come and must be from this dude who came out of a fish. This was God's way of tilling the ground for Jonah. In Jonah 3, 4, we see that Jonah preached a message of impending doom. God's judgment is meant to bring us to repentance. Whenever God preaches and gives a message of judgment, it's not for punishment. It's always for redemption. Anytime God warns of impending judgment, it's because he wants to give us a chance to repent. You never telegraph a punch. But God does so because he wants to move. And whenever God moves slowly in Scripture, it's because of his great compassion. God says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, says Ezekiel, but he wants to rescue everyone. And so we see four things when it comes to Nineveh's repentance. Four things when it comes to Nineveh's repentance in this thought. One, we see that it's comprehensive. From the greatest to the least, from the common people and the animals even, to the king, everyone, and it's a merism, so it's like a stretch from 6th grade to 12th grade, kind of like that. Everyone in between is, on, is in it. They even kept water and food from the animals so that these animals are bellowing out and making noises because they're hungry and thirsty. And so the entire city is wailing. They're like, we're not going to take any chance with this God. If God wants the animals to repent too, then we're going to make them to do so. That's how desperate they are. The second thing we see is that their their repentance was immediate. People responded. Even before the king sent out a decree, the people were repenting. Third, it was sincere. Fasting here is associated with a heightened sense of need for God and recognition that there is something greater than physical need, and that's communion with God. Putting on sackcloth is a way of mourning, sorrow over sin and repentance. The people who once found pleasure in skinning people alive now found sorrow in the ways that their skin was irritated by the sackcloth. And lastly, the fourth, it was hopeful. The king who does not know God, whether God's compassion is certain asks the question, who knows? It's up to God. The king can only rely on the compassion of a God who might give and extend forgiveness. And so what we see from the king is he does four things. And here we see again the chiasm. First, he rose from his throne, and then he took off his royal clothes and replaced it with sackcloth. And then he sat down in the dust. Jonah and the king both arose. Jonah arose to flee. The king arose to humble himself. While the king took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth, the same verb is used for Jonah in chapter 1, when the waves cover Jonah. There's a contrast that we're supposed to see. It's a foil. It's a literary device that we're supposed to meant to contrast. The king intensified the fast, expanded it to sackcloth, commanded everyone to cry out to God and repent of their evil ways, and was humble. And so this is how we see things are upended. Things are turned upside down. One, the people proclaim the fast before the king does. Usually, repentance is top-down declaration. But here, the people do it before the king. Second, the king leaves the throne and removes his kingly robes, preparing for the possible kingship of a greater king, that's Yahweh. And so he is upended. And the third thing we see that's turned over is that the Syrians are now crying out for their lives in the storm of God's wrath, just like the sailors were in chapter 1. The Ninevites are turned upside down. 
a once mighty kingdom and city is now brought to their knees. So how will God respond? Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, God also says this about other evil kingdoms. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and destroy and break it down, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of disaster that I intended to do so. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil on my side, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intend to do it. So what God is saying, if people are, contri- are contrite, if they repent, then I'm, a, I'm willing to turn away from my evil if they turn from their evil. Let's both turn from, I'm willing to turn from my destruction, I'm sorry, if they turn from their evil. What we see is that God allows for repentance so that it can lead to transformation. My favorite musical of all time, we're getting to all my favorite stuff. It's not High School Musical, but it's Les Mis. And in this movie, in this musical or book, if you've read, by Victor Hugo, um, we have the protagonist, uh, Jean Valjean, who at the beginning of the story is released from a long prison term where he's for stealing a loaf of bread. And he finds unexpected hospitality and shelter in the home of a very kind and hospitable bishop. But the temptations of old prove to be too strong. And so when the house is asleep, he creeps to the house, stealing all the silver, and makes his way out. He's caught by the police. Red-handed, he is brought back to the bishop's home, where the, the police ask if the, he wants to press charges. The bishop informs Valjean's accusers that he actually gave the silver to Valjean as a gift. It's an extraordinary act of kindness. And he asks for Valjean to be freed immediately. Valjean is mesmerized by the gesture and gazes upon the bishop with an incredible expression of gratitude. The bishop takes two candlesticks and gives to Valjean and says, you forgot these on your way out. And when the police leave, and it's Valjean and the bishop alone, the bishop commissions him out. He says, now go in peace. And by the way, my friend, when you come again, you don't have to come through the garden or through the back. You can always come out and go by the front door. He says, don't ever forget that you promised me to use the silver to become an honest man. You no longer belong to evil, but to good. This merciful act made such a strong impression for Valjean that for the rest of the book, he is a benefactor of so many other merciful acts to other people. For he rescues a destitute and disadvantaged woman who turned prostitute. He saves a man about to be crushed by a cart, giving up his identity to the police who are looking for him. And he protects the prostitute's daughter and raises her as his own granddaughter, saving her from child slavery. So is your repentance like Nineveh? Is it like Valjean? In receiving the mercy of God, do we trans- are we transformed in our lives and our ways of living? Or do we say the same? Is, what characterizes your repentance? Is it like Nineveh's in that it's sincere, it's comprehensive, it's immediate, and it's hopeful? Is it built on the foundation that the one who has a power to forgive you is a compassionate God. One of our youth teachers, Ryan Lee, said that the scary part of sin is not recognizing it. Pastor Deal gives an analogy of a frog. If you throw a frog into a boiling pot of water, it's going to try to jump out because it feels the heat and it's going to die. But, on the other hand, if you have a pot of water that's lukewarm, you put the frog in it and it's chilling, and then you slowly, over hours, raise up by one degree, the frog will get to a point where it adapts to the water around it and it will boil to, to death because it doesn't recognize that there is a change in its environment. The same is true of our sin. We can become so prone and so accustomed to our sin that we don't see it's killing us. And so there are four ways that people usually respond to sin in their lives. One, there's blaming. You see that Adam and Eve in the garden. You blame the other person. Two, we hide our sin. We walk into church with Bibles in hands, smiles on faces, but secrets in our hearts. Third, we rationalize or minimize sin. We say it's not that bad. And the last thing is a proper repentance before God, where we, like Nineveh, must take responsibility, feel the contrition, the weight of our sin, turn from sin and towards, towards God. This morning, what do you need to repent of? What's your repentance like? Jonah 2 and 3, with Jonah's prayer, shows that there's a wrong way to repent. And Jonah 3 with Nineveh shows there's a right way to repent. 
Are you hopeful in the arms of a living God? What is holding you from God's compassion, from his tender, loving embrace? I don't really know golf, but I ran this by one of our golf experts, Ryan. Um, in golf, there's something called a mulligan, right? So if you are, are giving, doing a drive, I don't even know if that's the right term. Uh, if, you're, if you're driving and uh, you miss and the ball like, falls off the tee, um, your partner, if he's very kind and merciful to you, will give you a mulligan. He'll give you a second chance to hit the ball again, but it doesn't count to your score. And in the same way, that's how it is with God. We're in a constant state of mulligans, right? That we live in a place where we, we swing and miss so badly all the time, but God doesn't let it affect our score. The last thought we see is that God's compassion must become our compassion. God's compassion must become our compassion. And so now we come to the father in the prodigal son story. So focusing on the father in this picture, the father welcomes the son back with open and outstretched arms. And the point of the prodigal son in the story in the Luke 15 parable is that we see ourselves in one of the two sons. If you've been living a life where you have run from God, you've pursued all the pleasures of this world, you've found emptiness at the bottom of the barrel, you'll find that you identify with the, maybe the first son, the younger son, the prodigal son. Or if you've grown up in church and you struggle with constant judgment and self-righteousness and religiosity, then you might identify as the elder son. But there's no conclusion to the Luke 15 parable. And the reason why Jesus doesn't offer conclusion is because he wants us to move, as Henry Nouwen says in the book of Return of the Prodigal Son, that the goal of the, pro- the parable is for us not to sit comfortably with becoming, identifying as the younger or the elder son, but to move to become more like the father. That's the goal of this story. And Jonah did not deserve a second chance. But what God wanted to develop in him was compassion, so that him understanding compassion, he can be compassionate to Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh out of compulsion, however, not obedience and certainly not compassion. But God is not like us. His constancy longs for people to return to him, even if they are wicked. The most unlikely people believe and repent and receive God's compassion and forgiveness. Nineveh is important to God, even if it's not important to Jonah. But how, you might ask, how I ask, can God be both merciful and just at the same time? We don't see it as two wings of an airplane. Oftentimes we see God's mercy prevails over his judgment, or God's judgment prevails over his mercy. But judgment and mercy go hand in hand. And we see this in an, like an illustration. So let's say that you're walking down the street. You see a, a group of sixth-grade boys who are harassing and beating up a poor third-grade girl. Now, you could walk by and mutter, boys will be boys, because you don't want to judge them and bring judgment to the boys. Is that loving? And certainly not. But if you intervene, if you discipline the boys, if you rescue and comfort the girl, there's love extended to everyone. You love the girl whom you've rescued, bringing her out of her misery. You love the neighborhood because you're helping to prevent this behavior from continuing. And you also love the boys because you're helping them to learn that this is not a future that they want to pursue. We see in the book of Jonah that God's justice and his compassion go hand in hand. By God bringing justice as a way for him extending and showing compassion to these people. And we are told to hold this economy together in love for the world and love for the lost. And that's the point of the prodigal son. So Henry Nouwen says, if God is compassionate, then certainly those who love God should be compassionate as well. I now see that the hands that forgive, console, heal, and offer a festive meal must become my own. Whether you are the younger son or the elder son, you have to realize that you are called to become the father. And there is no more appropriate arena for us to become the father, to show compassion, than in the contemporary arena against racism. Maybe the summative expression of the Asian American experience is the nail that sticks out gets hammered in. And as most of our church is Asian American, I want to address, in addition to Pastor Dio's words prior to his sermon, the crisis of being recipients of racism and violence. You might hear the words exotic, oriental, hardworking, model minority, effeminate, 
crazy rich Asians, Ivy League, white adjacent, China virus, Kung flu. And as tragic as the shootings were in Atlanta this past week, as Pastor Deal said, the racism endemic to Asian Americans is not new, but latent. Last year, there were 3,800 reported cases of hate incidences against Asian Americans in our country, 68% of them being against Asian women. And these are the ones that were reported. The U.S., from the very beginning of the get-go, had a law in the 1800s limiting the importation of Chinese women for prostitution purposes. What I don't want to do right now is I want to address this. I don't want to validate us in a way that's not helpful. I was thinking of, does this need to be brought up? But I know in God's sovereignty that in this message, God coincided this time of Jonah 3 with recent events. It could have been a sermon on justice, but instead we see Jonah 3. So what does Jonah 3 have to say about Asian American racism? Robert Long, the murderer, controlled his narrative by saying that he was a sex addict and that he killed to eliminate the source of his temptation. And the sheriff followed up with an almost equally vile statement saying that he was just having a bad day. Really? Are we going to talk about the vantage point of blaming the victim? And so as a side note, this is wrong theology, this is wrong thinking, and it's toxic to blame the victim for a crime and to see them as a source of what's wrong in this world. If we have been abused physically, mentally, sexually, if we've been the recipient of being molested or raped, we have to learn that Robert Long's thinking is not right, that we are not at fault. That's entirely the violence of the abuser. And Jesus frees us from the guilt or responsibility of our own abuse. Koreans have, and other Asians, have a kind of cultural, social activity of going to spas. And the shooting happened at a spa because he associated these with sexual temptation and sex shops. And I wonder, for the rest of America that has unquestionably agreed with his statement, is because they have fetishized and sexualized Asian women in a yellow fever type pandemic. Long was a member of a Baptist church, the son of a youth pastor. He had gone to mission trips to Costa Rica, and he was supposedly an avid server of the church. And in his misguided theology and unrepentant heart, he blamed women for his sexual issue. And that leads us as a church to realize that correct teaching on sin and lust and purity is important for us to understand and to to embrace. At the risk of possibly being canceled, I want to share what Jonah 3 has to say about this issue. And it's not something that goes in line with what our culture says right now. As Asians, Americans, we are different. We look different. We eat different foods. Our culture is foreign. Our values of community and respect might be foreign to Western culture. But living in America means embracing acceptable versions of ourselves, not authentic versions. And for as long as we are seeking to not embrace the authentic version of ourselves, we cannot embrace the authentic version of other people. But one step further says that if we are not willing to deal with the racism that's latent in our hearts, then we are not able to deal with the racism that's latent in our country. The church does not need the acceptable version of you. This country does not need the acceptable version of you. It needs the authentic version of us. But that also means we come to grips with the racism that's in our own hearts. So this is where the clamors of contemporary culture for anti-Asian American racism falls apart. It falls apart in its dissonance, and it falls apart in its definition of compassion and justice. Jonah shows that not only justice was important to God, but also the preaching of repentance and God's wrath. And all of our social problems, from racism to slavery in this country, stem from an alienation from, alienation from God. The most radical and loving thing that we can do as Christians is to help people to see that they need to be reconciled to God. But doing justice is also inextricably attached to it. And if we have a new relationship with God, it must affect our, new, our all relationships with other people. So Tim Keller says, We live in a culture 
that says that we must determine our own moral values. All people are obligated to support equal rights, however, justice for all and care for the poor. But that's one of the great contradictions and dissonance of our culture. It insists that morality is relative, but then it demands moral behavior. It teaches us to be true to ourselves, to identify with our deepest desires and dreams and pursue them, and not letting family or community or tradition or religion stand away. But then it also calls for justice and reconciliation and benevolence for all, which, all which are forms of self-denial, even as it encourages self-assertion. So it teaches relativism, yet it asks people to be ethical. And then it also fails in the way that it fails to uh, define compassion and justice. The world says... For Robert Long, the ones who perpetuate racism in my country, yes, there needs to be an equal footing for judgment and justice for evil. But the Assyrians are a testament that there is no people group too far gone. People who skin other people for pleasure are not outside the bounds of God's mercy. And so what does that say to those who oppress us with racist remarks or discrimination? A biblical justice and treatment of of justice. It doesn't just say equality for all. It says mercy and care for the poor and the marginalized. And while the world says we must share compassion and care for the victim and hate the oppressor, the Bible says we must share, show compassion and care for the victim and equal amounts of compassion for the oppressor. And that's where it flips everything over its head. Because it's hard for me to condemn the racism in our country because I am deeply racist. When I hear about the shootings in Atlanta, it makes me like white people less. I look down on black people because I think they don't work hard enough. I look down on Hispanics because they don't learn the English language. Even in the, Asian, the broad Asian categories, I look down on other minority groups. I am deeply racist. And it's hard for me to condemn racism because I know that I am so much deserving of all the criticism that goes towards the white people of faith. What God calls us to do is to show compassion. The ones that are seen as part of the problem, Nineveh, God saw as a solution to other people. He did that with Jonah. We went recently on our senior trip to Washington, D.C., and there we saw the World War II memorials and the Lincoln Memorial, my favorite. But the World War II memorial, there is a quotation from Eisenhower, who is one of our five-star generals, as well as presidents. And before D-Day, when they, the United States launched uh, a front on the Normandy Beach in France, he said to his troops, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. While that applies to them, what applies to us now is the same quote, because the eyes of the world are upon the church. How does the church respond? How does the Asian American church respond? How does Harvest Church respond in the face of racism? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to stand in line and condemn evil, but also share compassion to those who are most evil? The band Gunger, which is a Christian band, has a song called Us For Them. And it says, we will not fight their wars. We will not fall in line because if it's us or them, it's us for them. It's us for them. How can God's compassion become your compassion? How can you stop lingering in the state of the elder son or the, the prodigal son and move into becoming the father? How can you show compassion as God did to an undeserving city and country that shows violence and racism and murder to a marginalized minority? The answer is because if we understand the gospel and the grace that's in there, we can move into sharing compassion to other people. One of our youth students found themselves cutting one night. After suffering through years of depression and anxiety and shame of what was done to them, as they sat in their bathtub and they bled and they cried out in pain, those cries reached the ears of their parents because those cries were not just cries for pain, but cries for help, cries for love. And the parents came in, found the student bleeding in the bathtub. One parent expressed their anger and disappointment and left. But the other parent did something that was astounding. They came to the bathtub. They took compassion. 
They climbed into the bathtub and held the student as they bled. And they cried with the student as they cried. This captures the mission of God. Because Jesus climbed into our bathtub in the way that he commissioned and fulfilled the, the, the mission of God. In our contrition, when we felt the weight of our sin, Jesus covered our wounds and wiped our tears. And in his compassion, he allowed himself to be smeared by our blood. Compassion means to suffer with someone. Last night with our students, as we gathered around in the cafeteria praying for our student, Livka, that was one of the greatest demonstrations of compassion. Because as we prayed and as we cried, we were sharing in her affliction. And that's the compassion of God, because God isn't just merciful or gracious. He chose to suffer with us, and he chose to suffer for us. And that makes all the difference, so that we can be comforted by his grace. Because what separates us right now from receiving grace is, the question is, do you believe that you are good enough for his love? The father heart of God is an extravagant and extreme love as a prodigal son. We are not good enough to receive God's love, and yet he pursued after us. You see, just as the king of Nineveh abandoned his throne, abandoned his riches to return to the Lord in rags of repentance, so did Jesus also leave his throne to stoop down to rags for our sake. And when the prodigal son returned home, the father threw a feast, putting on robes and rings and sandals and killing the fattened calf for the son. And that's scandalous. And that's a scandalous grace because to even throw a party for someone who's so messed up in life, the father gets it. The father understands that killing the fattened calf in return for our son is a celebration of God's grace. And our father sacrificed the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, so that those who see the sign of God's perfect love would come home and realize the father heart of God. No matter how badly you've ruined your life, God is waiting for you to return. Maybe even for the first time. Maybe for the 99th time. You might not think that you're worth it, but God does. He alone does. And he is good all the time, even when you don't think you are good enough for his love. Nobody is too far gone. Jonah 3 3 teaches us that. Nineveh was not too far gone. The racist people in our country are not too far gone. Jonah was not too far gone. And you and I are not too far gone. So let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We see from a distance as we make our way back to the Father's heart that there is compassion waiting for us. And maybe for some of us it's really hard to believe that compassion is waiting around the bend. But as we make the corner, in Luke 15, 20, it says that while the son was still far off, the father ran to the son, abandoned all that he had, and ran to him and kissed him and embraced him. That's the image of the prodigal son. That's the image of of Jonah 3 that you show us today, God. That you are there pursuing not only Jonah, but Nineveh. In the same way that you pursue rebellious, self-righteous people like us, you also pursue the people that perpetuate racism in our country. So God, would you help us to repent of the racism that's latent in our hearts so that we can help fight racism in our country, to strive for justice and care, and to know that you are calling us to adopt your compassion and to share it to other people. God, would you change us, help us to be reminded of your scandalous grace. In Jesus' name we pray.